I'm over here now. Pardon the interruption, no need for introduction. It's the drunken monk. Turn this shit up a little something. I'm bucking, up in smoke, sipping Bacardi till I'm giving my car keys to Jimmy Ferrari. And we out, about to go jump in a mosh pit full of hundreds of hot chicks saying something obnoxious like, I gotta put my foot in your ass permit. When I'm done, I'll cook you in a Brooklyn blast furnace. Episode 110 of the Brooklyn Blast Furnace Podcast. Should I should, should I be so bold as to sit here to say that I'm sitting here with a legend? <laughs> Introduce yourself, my friend. Yeah, I'm I am uh, by no means a legend. To, in some um, circles, I I I, I I'm, would I'm, say you are. I'm just a uh, just a middle aged man trying to make his way through a. A strange time in the history of, of mankind and in the history of this planet. Um, my name is Richie Birkenhead. Um, actual given name is Richard. People started calling me Richie in, in camp when I was a little kid. I, I actually resisted it for a while, but I, I surrendered many years ago. <laughs> Very nice. Underdog into another... Um, First Youth of Today album. I was just going to say. Don't, don't leave out the Bel Airs and the Numbskulls. Okay. Well, <laughs> two it, two bands that never released anything. So you know. Well, that was all right. Well, I guess that's. I definitely want to talk about that Youth of Today record because that Youth of Today record is in like my top five of all time, hands down. But um, you want to go back? Like you before we just press record. I don't even know how we got into it, but we would just say you were just saying that, like Adam Horowitz, you know, Ad Rock from the Beastie Boys was in your homeroom class. You want to take us back a little bit for well, a little? Oh, okay. So journey yeah, through Richie's so. young youth. <laughs> So he, uh, yeah, well, I, uh, I sort of discovered hardcore um, in bits and pieces. And early on, obviously, I started hearing about this form of punk that was even more punk than punk and louder and faster. And uh, uh, I went to high school on the Upper West Side, a school called uh, McBurney. And yes, uh, Adam Harvitz went there uh, at the same time. Although I think at, at one point, maybe... Uh, the next year, I think he went to City Eyes, and then I, I don't know where. But um, he was in a band called The Young and the Useless. Um, and, uh, you know, there were a couple of other kids in that school who were into hardcore. At that time, I was playing in a, in a rockabilly band, like a kind of a rockabilly slash psychabilly band. And, um, Do you want me to pause it so you can take that? Um, I could pause it. You won't even hear it. You won't even hear Sure, it give it a quick pause. Hold on. No problem. Hold on. Yeah. And we're back. Easy like that. Yeah, so um, I started... Uh, so what, year, what year are we talking about, approximately? So, uh, not to, to date myself here, because oh, I am ancient. I, <laughs> I was in high school from... Uh, well, I graduated in 83. Okay. So I started high school in 79. I was only seven, Richie. So we're talking uh, <laughs> around, around 1981 is when I started becoming really interested in hardcore. And I think it was... Uh, it was that year that I went to. I was already playing clubs when I was very young in this this rockabilly band, and we we would we actually opened for the Cramps, the Gun Club, and we even played a show with Carl Perkins at the uh, at the Mud Club. And I was wow. going, I was going to the Peppermint Lounge and Max's and, and all of those you know yeah, clubs so- that don't exist anymore. Danceteria was a place where I hung out, you know, even on weeknights when I was in high school. But the first hardcore show I went to was was the Bad Brains at at Max's, and I'm pretty sure the Beasties played that show too. But it was it was before before Adam Harvitz was in the band. He was in the Young and the Useless, uh, a singer named Dave Skilkin. Um, and I, I actually remember vividly uh, that seven inch, um, that Young and the Useless seven inch, being given out at McBurney by Adam. Uh, he handed out free copies to everyone, and uh, I wish I knew where mine was. I was just going to ask anyway. you if you still had it. Damn well, it. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I think I know uh, what its fate was, which is the fate of a lot of my records when um, I was living in L.A. for a few years. And in 1997, I, I spent most of that year recording an Into Another album that never came out, but recording it overseas in London. And I stored a, a bunch of 
records. And I mean, by a bunch, I mean thousands of records in the basement of a friend. Oh, uh, I hear basement and records. Well, and it's like, oh, El, El, God. El Nino happened, and the Ugh. basement filled with water, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So. That's got to bother you still to this day. Yeah, no, no, you have no idea. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there was everything. There were, like, monophonic Beatles albums. There was, like, Bowie, Diamond Dogs with the original artwork. There was lots of hardcore. There were Misfits, Seven Inches, you know. Oh, God. And for a while, I salvaged, like, the vinyl without the art, which would all... And and then, yeah, it it was... Anyway. Don't want to talk about that. So yeah, <laughs> open up old wounds. So yeah. so it was. It was. I'd have to call 1981 the year that I got interested in earnest in hardcore, um, and uh, started. You know, a couple of years later, started wanting to play more of that kind of music. I was. I was already super into punk. I, w- I got into punk actually in the late 70s because I have older brothers and friend of theirs turned me on to the Ramones and, and the Clash and, and and even earlier stuff, you know, it was like proto-punk stuff like Stooges and MC5 and Dolls and all that. So I always liked kind of, you know, I liked the music even before uh, I knew what the definition of it was. And, and yeah. so, of course, it was like a natural progression that I wanted something louder and faster. And I was also, um, I, I just loved the fact that, you know, once I started going to hardcore shows, that it felt, it felt like this little, kind of, uh, you know, family. Like it just felt like this small scene mm-hmm. growing every day, and people knew each other, and and, uh, and you know, you see that the same faces from show to show, and, and you know, the same characters, and um, yeah, I just immersed myself in it. Yeah, you used to go to shows at the A Seven. Yeah, yeah, I went, definitely. I went. In fact, I, I saw The Young and the Useless at A7. I'm pretty sure they had a TV on stage with uh, <laughs> David Letterman playing on the TV. <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. I think that was, it might, that, I think that one was at A7. It's a yes, lot. Yes, no, I definitely went to shows at A7. In fact, I remember one of the first people I started talking to at, at hardcore shows. Uh, I mean, I, there were a lot of them, but... Um, I used to see Russ, who I was later on in Underdog with, yeah. at a lot of shows because we were like, I always had a skateboard with me, and he always had a skateboard. And back then, there weren't that many East Coast punk kids skating, believe yeah. it or not. There, there were not a lot, and he, you know, he always had a skateboard with him. I always had one with me, and I don't know. At some point, we just started talking to each other, and uh, and then later on, he was playing in in Murphy's Law, and. Uh, yeah, and then after a while, one day you just said to me, hey, you want to start a band? And I, I had a band called the Numbskulls, um, which start, I started doing in like 1984 or something, just with friends. And uh, Never released anything? Ne- no, there was like a live t- cassette that went around, and, and we, did a de- <laughs> we did a demo at a, um, a friend of mine was going to school at Syracuse, going to, going to college, and I think we got like free a free day of recording and nice. some crappy demo. And Cause you made it, yeah. Do you still have a copy? No, I wish I did. Does anybody have a copy? I, I saw somebody, <laughs> yeah, someone like posted it, a picture of it on Instagram or something. Really? Yeah. All right, I'm gonna have to start dig. I'm gonna have to so start somebody, digging. Yeah. <laughs> Not numbskull spelled N U M S K U L S. Right. The B is silent. <laughs> We just take it out of there. It's just out of there. No, it's, it's just out of there. It's a and there's only one album. It's it's a it's, you know, it's just it's a streamlined version of the word. Right. I was way ahead of my time with that. Oh, of course. You know, like donut. <laughs> exactly. The, the Americanized. Spell. Yeah. We take the gh out of there. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Honestly, I like the long, complex spellings, but you know. Do what, you? What are you going to do? Yeah. But no, it was <laughs> like the numbskull spelling was apropos because after all we're calling ourselves idiots. So. Uh, exactly. <laughs> awesome. So, so Russ was the one that was like that asked you if you wanted to start Underdog. Um, yeah, I think we were just we were talking one day before a show, and he said, um, "Hey, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be in Murphy's Law. You know, you want to start a band?" And uh, I was like, wow. And, and, and actually, the Numbskulls had played a few shows in Murphy's Law. And I, and I actually, I, I loved 
that band so much. I mean, the, all, those, you know, that whole first wave of New York hardcore bands from, you know, 82 through 84, 85, um, you know, so many of those bands influenced me so much. Oh, and, sure. Um, so, yeah, like, Murphy's Law were, like, larger than life to me. J- I, to this day, I put Jimmy up there with any front man of oh, any band. You know, absolutely. As far as charisma, showmanship, um, sense of humor, everything. I mean, everything. You know, uh, all those guys. I mean, Harley, you know, the Chromax. I, like, you know, abs- put him up there with any any of the most, like, charismatic people who ever stood on stage. But um, and, and music was just undeniable, too. Anyway, so Russ, um, as soon as he said that to me, I was like, absolutely. I just, and it was more out of a, out of just a friendship thing, out of just wanting to hang around with him more and, and uh, you know, just like, uh, you know, even more so than a music connection, you know. So that, that's, that was another great thing about hardcore. It was, it wasn't just the music. Right. It was like the camaraderie, little yeah, brotherhood like feeling. Island of Misfit Toys kind of thing, yeah. Yeah. So then you then what you do, you you obviously you made a demo. Um, then, well actually with with uh yeah, so we I think we didn't do the underdog try I know there were two demos and one was later. I, I want to say we recorded the 7-inch First, I think that we th- we weren't sure whether or not that was a going to be a demo or not, but I think that's what New Beginning released as a seven inch was the first stuff we ever recorded. Right. Um, and the yeah, we we made a demo actually after that that then turned into the Vanishing Point, which uh, huh. was an album. And on the demo, I played all the guitar stuff, and then we got Chuck uh, in the band, and he played on the on the album The Vanishing Point right that was on Revelation no so no no, so the 7 inch was on New Beginning The Vanishing Point was on Caroline and then I think later on it got you know as like you know as licenses expired and Uh and copyrights expired it went on it was on a few different labels and those tracks that were the demo and the tracks that ended up on The Vanishing Point um Ultimately, did end up the the demo tracks ended up on Revelation. Um, I think we combined at least two of our demos um, and turned them into an album called Demos. Of demos, them, which, which was on Revelation. Yes, which features um, me in a in a crazy tie dyed Bob Marley shirt that a that a kid who came to see the band gave me as a gift and. Was like, will you wear this? I was like, he was like twelve, so I couldn't say no. I right. Like, I was like, okay, and uh, of course, the picture <laughs> that gets taken for the cover of that has me in. Of course. This crazy tie dyed. Uh, That's yeah. good though. It is. It's good. different. I think. Uh, yeah. As you talk about it, you smile, so it's a good thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, I was wearing like a like an independent truck shirt, and I, had to, I took that off and put on the crazy tie dyed shirt that hadn't even been washed yet. And right. Somebody took a picture. <laughs> and there it, it is. But in that picture, on the cover of demos, um, you got Zach from uh, Inside Out, later Rage, yeah, singing along with me. Awesome. You got Dano Mahoney from uh, Carry Nation and uh, No for an Answer, um, also in there in the mix. Yeah. Amongst amongst other West Coast luminaries. <laughs> so now, from oh, where, do, where? All right. So this is what approximately what year? This is. I mean, obviously, this is mid eighties. So eighty. When was it? Eighty six. That uh, break down the walls comes out. Yeah, um, it's eighty six. Yeah, yeah, I think it was 86. I think, I'm pretty sure we recorded it in 86. It may have come out in 87. I know I, I toured with Youth of Today in 87. Okay. Um, and that all came about... I had several stories about that tour. Really? Yes. Okay. I, I had, um, we did, when there was the benefit for, um, for Howie, Alone in the Crowd. Sure. So, 
um, Siv invited me to his house to. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do these things really, so he was like, "Yeah, well, do, I'll do it if we can just, you know, we'll talk about the show for Howie and whatever." So it was, cool. so it was um, Howie and and uh, not Howie. Uh, what's his name? Jesus Christ, I had that at this part. Sing for along the crowd. Your jewels. You're killing your own podcast here. <laughs> no, I'm having a brain yeah, fart yeah, over yeah. here. What do they teach you in fucking... That don't teach me nothing. No, broadcasting. No, school. Jules and Siv, and we were talking, and he was talking all about that tour, so there was several people yeah. that I've heard craziness about that tour. Yeah, I mean, it was... Listen, I have, I have nothing but very fond memories of that tour. There were some, you know, some things, some uh, incidents. But yeah. What stands um, out? People like all this. Nah, stuff. only the good stuff. Only the good stuff. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the shows were amazing. I mean, playing in squats. Um, well, we also we played in we played everything from squats to like fenders with you know, three thousand people in Long Beach. You know, like, we played all kinds of shows. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, that the way I ended up in that band was well. First of all, I instantly became. A youth of today fan. I went to their first show, right? and really? the way that happened was, um, well, first of all, I, I I saw those guys around. You know, I, I remember Ray seeing Ray at shows. I remember Violent Children. I even remember. I actually used to go to shows like in, in Connecticut and everywhere else. I, I would go like to like a high school upstate to see like the Misfits. Like I would go to crazy shows all over the place, and um, so I knew them casually. I knew their faces. And then one day, a friend of mine said, hey, do you want to go see Agnostic Front? And it was somewhere outside the city, some, I think somewhere north of the city. And, um, and I remember going, and I saw this band called Youth of Today was opening. And I, was like, I was intrigued by the name, because it didn't sound like the name of any other. You know, sure. And this was right when AF were starting to sound kind of metal. And, and, and all of a sudden, you know, I walk in, I see these guys, and they kind of reminded me of like, DYS, SSD, even the way they were like dressed and stuff. And, um, sure. And, you know, they played their set. I was, all I'm thinking is this sounds like 1982. And um, I just made a beeline for them right afterward and just started talking to them. And yeah. within like a heartbeat, these guys were like my best friends. And Purcell ended up being my roommate for, for a long time. And Ed, uh, he moved into my apartment in the city. We were just always, always together. Ray and I were always together. We would go to like the Krishna Preaching Center on Greenwich Avenue. We would, you know, skateboard, hang out. You know, just, we were just always around each other, and it was just kind of a natural thing. And I think at the time, and Priscilla and I were roommates. Um, I forget whose idea it was, but it was just like, you know, why don't you uh, record a record with Youth of Today? And um, and I did, and, and just had the greatest time. And Drew, Drew played drums, and obviously yeah. Drew's, you know, like family to me to this day. Um, and we just had the most amazing, most fun time recording that album. Like I don't think I ever laughed so much or had a had a better time um, recording. And and then that tour was, you know, so, that tour made for some of the the best memories of my life. I mean, that's awesome. Just uh, you know, because you have to remember, even though this was like what people were calling the kind of second wave of straight edge or whatever it was yeah. it wasn't even about that like the way it felt to us was you know hardcore was in like a precarious place and not not saying that youth of today in any way shape or form saved hardcore or anything but youth of today was kind of a return to this very mm-hmm. bare bones you know Hardcore, sure. Just um, and and the energy of those shows and the response from kids and like going to these remote places way before the internet existed and just forming these friendships and this this network of, of you know, friends and pen pals and phone pals and just people you know who, who would contact you when they came to New York and you'd contact them when you went to their hometown and um, it was just an incredible incredible experience you know and there were you know there were some incidents on that tour maybe a couple of uh, incidents of fisticuffs of but, course uh, uh, well you're young kids over and you know yeah. on tour you probably want to cannibalize each other after a while Tempest oh, yeah. well, Flair oh no no we, people are hungry no, no, we, we loved each other there was not uh, uh, yeah, I, as far as I remember I have nothing but fond memories of that there was, right. there was, there was some fisticuffs with uh, people 
outside of our little circle. Circle. Yeah. Yeah. So now, when when I, I mean everybody knows that you are vegan because you have a tattoo on your arm since God only knows how long ago when you got it. Siv, but, actually, Siv gave me that tattoo a long, long time. Really? A very long time. Yeah. Okay. So when did you become, I guess, conscious of all of that or decide to go vegan? Um, well, I became vegetarian first in the, okay. in the mid-80s. And I, I think, I, if I remember correctly, I went vegetarian along with my friends, with, with Purcell mm-hmm. and with Ray. We kind, of, we kind of just crossed over into vegetarianism together, probably within days or weeks of each other. Um, it had been in my mind, honestly, since... Uh, since my adolescence, I always felt, I always really loved animals and, and, and nature and stuff. And, I, and I, the part of me always felt a little weird eating dead animals. And uh, it, the, the tipping point for me was um, I, I walked by a table set up by, I think, I think it was the early days of PETA, but it was, it was in, the, in the early or mid-80s. Um, and they actually had a, a TV and a VCR, and they were playing footage of animals being slaughtered and being, you know, prodded and kicked, and these scared animals. I think they were lambs, and there was audio, and it was just—it was like footage someone had taken out of a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Um, and and the sounds of these animals screaming, and and uh, and just you know, just the brutality of it, and and thinking just. You know, just so someone can eat some unnecessary meal, uh, you know that, and and even then, I it was reading all I could about it and learning about the, you know, the, the ramifications uh, where the environment was concerned, and and, uh, and that that video is what prompted me to become a vegetarian. Believe it or not, I, I just I I couldn't do it anymore after. Um, a few bites of my next hamburger or something. And then it was later on, I became vegan, um, really, really did it, like, boom, in, in 1990. I, I kind of did it in 89, and there may have been, like, a, a yogurt or a piece of cheese or two in there in the interim. <laughs> right. 1990, and it was a book called Diet for a New America. That that was the tipping point into veganism for me. Hmm. So... Um, yeah, I just needed, I think I needed those little kind of pushes over the edge for each of those steps. But yeah, I mean, it's, now it's, for me, it's 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 most important because it's become this, it's like an existential matter right now. I mean, there's, factory farming is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases, and it looks like climate change might be the thing that ultimately does us all in, so. Um, you think so? I think we're at a, Yeah. Yeah. I, well, it's not just me. It's you know, no. I know. I know it's, that. It's, but it's I'm, entire, I'm sitting with you. Yeah. So the <laughs> so the entire global scientific community uh, is pretty much unanimous on the fact that we're at a very very critical stage where climate change is concerned. And one of the biggest uh, steps you can take to reduce your, you know, so-called carbon footprint, footprint is to yeah. uh, to eliminate animal products from, from your diet. You know, and, and actually it's you know, look at the, the state of the world right now and you you can find plant based uh, you know, high protein, high fiber foods um, in middle America in supermarkets. You know, you can find I mean I think it's, yeah. it's a really great thing. I remember going on tour and not even seeing a carton of soy milk between the coasts, you know. Right. And uh, you know it's it's a great thing that it's on a lot of people's minds and and it really looks like um, it's not going to be it, it doesn't seem like an impossible dream anymore that humans are going to end up you know for the most part existing on plant based diets. So, right. I mean, it's going to come to a certain point, I guess. Yeah, it's it's not you know it's untenable. Animal agriculture is not sustainable. It just, right. It just isn't. We'll run out of fresh water and. You know, we'll, there won't be any more trees left to clear for you know, raising cattle. So. Yeah. Now, when we first started this, I mean, we said it kind of tongue in cheek. You had said that, you know, you're uh, 
coasting through this very strange time. What did you kind of mean by that? I guess that's my technically my first question for you. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are, you are you goading me into a political? Uh, no, not no. Because yeah, I really don't okay. discuss politics, but I don't. Know, right. I'm not goading you into. I definitely do discuss, but but I, yeah, but it's fine. Um, no, I, I think we live in. You know, I think a few, there was a perfect storm of <laughs> of human creations that. Uh, have dumbed us down as a nation and as a world. I think that, you know, a combination of social media, reality TV, video games, and other kind of I'm so glad you just said that bullshit have 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 eroded intellectualism and have made us, a, you know, a populace that has no grasp of shades of gray or subtlety or nuance or, you know sensible reform or anything we're all just we exist on catchphrases and buzzwords and black and white and we just shout inside of echo chambers and there's no creative or constructive discourse anymore um, and we're you know I hate to say it and I don't mean to make sweeping generalizations but we are we have become generally a society of idiots who just operate on id and not intellect, and we've ended up with, in my opinion, a, a really vile buffoon figurehead at, at the head of our government with a lot of much more intelligent people around him who were absolutely stuffing their pockets with money in a, in a well-oiled machine of a kleptocracy. Um, and our standing in the world is plummeting and uh, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm really worried about the future I have kids and I'm, I'm worried about um, a society where there's so much vitriol and hatred and, and intolerance and narrow mindedness and uh, you know for a while there I thought we were on a good path and now I, I actually do worry about the future so it's a, it's a weird time for me it's, it's like I'm living inside of a uh, like a dystopian graphic novel or something I just I, I can't even believe it I wake up every day and I, I just cannot even believe the state of our nation the state of the world mm -hmm. listen that whole thing especially you, I thought it was I think it's great that you started off with that whole social media video game that that, that whole thing because I've gone to places all over the place where I see People of all different creeds, colors, races, size, everything. And everyone has a smile on their face. And everybody is having a good time. But I just, I think that social media sheds a different light on that. Because of what you said about buzzwords and this and that. And everyone's just shouting into an echo chamber. And it's black and white and this and that. And that something is lost with communication with all that stuff. And But I've been in, in places where... Everyone gets along, sure. so I think it's I. Th I mean, I agree a thousand percent with every single thing that you said. I had a shitty grin on my face as you were speaking, because it's it's you know I I can't I can't agree more. But it's just I think that there's just a magnification of nonsense with all of this phones. Like like yeah. I very rarely take the train. I took the train here. And I'm looking, and there's every single person. Like it used to be, everyone has their newspaper. Yeah. Everyone is stuck yeah. in their phone. And I, it's uh, yeah, I, it blows my mind. I see families all the time. I live in a place where there's often, you know, tourists and 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 families walking around. You know, I, I live near a museum, and I live near a park, and I live near a, a building that people like to go see. And and I I, I see families who probably are coming to New York for the first time or or just come, they they rarely come here and I'll see every member of the family looking at a phone they're they're yeah. they're on holiday they're in New York they could be experiencing culture and and the weather and beautiful landscaping and architecture and other things but they're looking at their phones right. and when they're not looking at their phones they're taking selfies with selfie sticks or they're taking pictures of each other so that they can post them on on social media and look we all we all have our 
guilty pleasures. Sure. You know, I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, but but I do have a, a private Instagram account, and I probably use it for the same sort of ego satiation, even if indirectly. You know, I probably fool myself as to the reasons why. You know, I could say, oh, I just do it so my mom can see pictures of the kids. But we all do it to varying degrees. Um, and But it, it is really, for a lot of people, social media has become a way to project a virtual self, like a, a scrubbed, sanitized, idealized virtual self. Um, like a highlight reel, too. Or like a highlight reel. Yeah, and it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's really a shame. I mean, I just, I can't believe... You know, I, I have a daughter who's 10, and I... My, I have a 9-year-old. Yeah, so she's, she's not on social media, but some of her friends are, and they have these private little Instagram accounts. But they, you know, if if one of them, you know, doesn't get enough likes on a picture or something, it, it will actually affect her yes. mood greatly. And it's like, you know, people are using this as a tool for for validation and... and Affirmation and it's 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 not real. It's not real and it's sad and you know it's. I mean, obviously, it's so obvious the great irony that social media has made us less absolutely social. Actually, you know, it's it's an obvious truth, but it's a tragic truth. Yeah. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent with everything that you said. So now, on a lighter note of sorts. Let's get from from underdog, mm-hmm. and then how does underdog play into and mesh with, and then the formation of into another another one of my favorites. Oh wow, thank you. Um, You're welcome. I'm always, I'm, it always shocks me when when you know because in, into another was a band that started with no genre in mind or anything. It was actually it just started from just Drew and I both being in a very weird p- place, kind of post hardcore, and and uh, but sometimes uh, the weird place is the good place yeah, to be, so, man. <laughs> so we, have, but but we did say things at the out. So where do I start? So basically, we had both become. You know, this is 1989, and mm-hmm. both Drew and I were constantly in touch with each other because we were feeling alienated and weird and just on the fringes and marginalized like we we just I think we just didn't want to be part of something and and again not I love hardcore and always have and I love it in its present state and I loved it back then and and uh, but we felt that it, you know parts of hardcore had become more about the sort of superficial style Parkour, and I don't mean the way you dress. I just mean there's just the the superficial elements as opposed to the the message, right? And right. the messages. Um, and 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 we and I think we both felt stifled musically, and and we we just basically gravitated toward each other. And I was like, you know, it was '89. I was finishing up the the last Underdog tour. He was finishing up the last Bold tour, and we were just like, let's do something musically. So we would just sit in, in a room every day and just talk for hours and hours. And I'd pick up a guitar and strum and just sing some stream of consciousness lyrics. And he would, you know, play a beat on the couch or on some, you know, yeah, you know, <laughs> drum pads. And, and we would just talk about just all our influences. And we both we both loved a very very broad spectrum of music. And I always did. You know, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a house with lots of music. My mother is a lyricist and a composer and, and you know, I grew up listening to everything from all the standards in like the Great American Songbook to jazz from every era to lots and lots of classical music to to seminal rock music and singer songwriter stuff and folk and, and and you know so I was listening since early childhood to everything from you know the Beatles and Pink Floyd and the Stones and the Who to you know Arthur Rubinstein playing Chopin to huh. Miles Davis to you know Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald etc right. cetera, etc. Cetera. So mm-hmm. Drew is kind of the same way. We we started talking about the stuff that moved us the most when we were kids, and we both we both had in common with that was was Bowie, um, was early Queen. We both worshipped the second love, half. So love Queen, Queen. We loved 
like Queen Two was one of our very very favorite albums that we talk about. Just you know? constantly playing in my oh, house as like, a child. Yeah, too. Ogre Battle, you know, Fairy Fellers, Masterstroke, all that stuff. Um, we loved, you know, I've always been a fan of great lyrics. I've always loved Dylan and mm-hmm. Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell and. and we and Drew and I loved things that were dark and scary. We loved Sabbath, you know. We loved, you How know, could you not like Sabbath? Yeah, and we loved Deep Purple, and we loved, you know. I just, we, just so we would literally talk about our musical influences. We we at the outset said, let's let's not try and emulate anyone, but let's just make music and see, just see what comes out of us. And let, let's let's have no constraints on ourselves. Let's not try to fit into a scene or a genre, or a movement yeah. or anything and let's just make music and sometimes there was even we were even doing it I think to be provocative like I, we, I remember joking I was like can you imagine if, if I sing like you know because we, we also I love Rob Halford and I love I love our early Judas Priest you know I love you know like we, we Drew and I talked about that early on how like Run of the Mill uh, from Rock and Roll was one of our favorite songs and I, right. I love like the fact that Rob Halford would sing you know, three octaves and like these super high, like non-falsetto, super high notes, and it was still like you know, people were banging their heads and wearing like leather cuffs with spikes and yeah. And so I was like, can you imagine like how would hardcore kids feel if I if I sing like Rob Halford like high notes like way above middle C and stuff? So I was like, you know, I think part of it was maybe even trying to be provocative, but. It was just very uh, organic, and I, I wrote a bunch of songs and music and lyrics and stuff, and then we started seeking out other uh, musicians, and, and I was, every once in a while I would run into the editor of uh, one of the metal magazines, and she's like, you should meet my, my boyfriend, Peter, he's, he's, a, he's a great guitar player, and, and, uh, and Drew and I had, had asked a few people to to come into like a rehearsal studio and just sit with us and play guitar and stuff or play bass and we just didn't find anyone that we clicked with and then Peter came in and we saw him he had like hair down to his ass and like <laughs> you know like white basketball shoes and like acid washings and we're like oh god what's, yeah. what's, what's gonna happen here <laughs> and we go into a room with him and he just proceeds to blow our minds first he's got this unbelievable background in classical guitar so he can play everything and Transcribe any piece written for any other instrument to guitar, you know, and like, um, and what he could do that a lot of people couldn't do. I, you know, it's funny, you sit with musicians and people who could like really noodle and play, and you just say, like, I'm gonna play like blues in, in E right now, just right. just play something over it. And he, he had that thing, he could just. He, he could improvise with with a lot of passion and a lot of soul. So we were like, "He's in," you know. Fuck it, hair down to his ass. I don't care. Yeah, he's in. <laughs> um, and we you know, just loved him from day one. And then he's like, "Oh, my friend Tony is who used to be in Whiplash is looking for a band." And then Tony comes in. And he's even got even more soul and more feel and more just like, you know, ability to just improvise and just, you know, like give me goosebumps mm-hmm. so it was just four a weird mix of four disparate souls like um who were just moved by music more than anything else just making music that didn't fit in anywhere yeah because uh, at the time it was completely different completely different yeah and, and uh it still doesn't sound like anything else no no it doesn't for better or for worse and and we also knew um you know drew and i knew early on we're like we're gonna make music that people are either gonna passionately hate or love and that's a great thing because yeah. you know the worst thing would be if people were just like completely indifferent to it so um I actually would and and, and still do kind of um enjoy the 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 negative passionate feelings as much as the positive ones. do you in a way yeah I mean it doesn't it, that stuff doesn't hurt my feelings because I I know I know how cathartic and real it was and is for me into another and um, you know much more so than anything I've ever done especially lyrically um, yeah you know it's, oh, it's, it's, it's just me it's you know I'm expressing um, myself uh, without any bullshit without any contrivance I mean I've, I've made myself really vulnerable with a lot of those lyrics and that's you know mm-hmm. we, have, we have a very short time here so it just feels just feels honest to me so I don't I, don't, I honestly couldn't give a shit um 
what anyone's negative feelings are about it, that's fine. You know, just yeah. move on and, and continue listening to whatever else you were listening to. You know, um, I, I remember, you know, catching shit for a lot of stuff that I would love early on. Some stuff that ultimately became wildly popular later, but um, no. So yeah, I, I I think it would have just it would have felt really weird if there was just no reaction whatsoever to what we were doing. Right. Um, so. Yeah. So, like, that first record, like, did you tour, like, extensively off of that first record? We did. We actually went out almost immediately and just, like, even though we we knew we'd, like, lose money and everything, we just, um, we couldn't wait to get back on the road and uh, just bought a van. I think we went through a couple of them. And <laughs> but there's always the great van we stories. Went everywhere. I mean, we'd go... You know, all the way down to South Florida. We'd go all the way across the the South and the Southwest, and playing places like, you know, everything from Amarillo, Texas, to Lawrence, Kansas, to you know, Portland and Seattle, and wow. L.A. And some shows were great, and some shows were half empty. And and uh, but over time, it built. And then and very early, we also we went to uh, to Europe, even on that first album. Really? Yeah. We went. We did like a package tour with a metal band from Boston called Maelstrom, who we ended up having a great time. With. I've heard of that band. I remember yeah. that band. So they packaged us. Uh, Mad packaged us together, and we did this is and this is like 1991 or 92. I think it was 91. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and, and the first album came out in 90. The first into another album. Yeah. So yeah, we we started. We hit the road immediately, and we and we, Mad hooked you up. Mark. Yeah. Well, well. So Mark and Uda from Mad were friends of mine from the early underdog days because sure. they they came to New York I think as tourists and uh, and I met them like you know I think pretty much fresh off the plane and uh, and we became fast friends and this is mid 80s um, and I, yeah and we just formed a, a close friendship and then later on when Into Another was happening um, you know again this was like pre-internet or the very early days of like AOL or something and somehow I got in touch uh, with Mark and Uta over there I probably just picked up a phone and called them yeah <laughs> we did have telephones yeah. we did so yeah so so from from into another started touring almost immediately um, upon releasing our first record and then we just kept touring I mean we would tour for many months out of every year um, we'd go we'd go to Europe we'd come back here come back again um, yeah we loved we loved playing live in fact we always felt like that was you know we, we never really made a recording that captured what we were doing live um, that's where the real magic happened for us was, was live live was live show yeah. well speaking of live show you guys are playing This is Hardcore this year, which I was pleasantly surprised to see that. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm pleasantly surprised to see it, too. So, yeah. So, again, we, we are eternally grateful that, despite the fact that Into Another is, is, is not a hardcore band, it's really not any kind of a band, we've always... There, is, there have always been those people in the hardcore scene who have opened their hearts and minds and arms to us and we, we are eternally grateful and in fact most of the shows into another ever played were with hardcore bands and yeah. hardcore venues and and uh and so we we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude um to the hardcore scene for like standing by us those that did and those that didn't you know yeah don't give a shit but um right but uh you don't have to worry about yeah, it you, I mean, you can't make everybody happy so you just no, no, I don't and then, then yeah. you, so, you, you know you've been but, around but, uh, a few times but Drew and I both feel a, a, a tremendous amount of, of gratitude for that and we feel you know the fact that we're even now we're being welcomed into this this evening of hardcore yeah I mean I think we're we're dead smack in the middle of the night we're playing a very short set but then after that we're gonna do an after an after party and play all of uh, Ignorus, which we're going to do over the course of three days. We're going to play Ignorus three times plus another 20 minutes of music or so each night to flush it out into a full set. 
It's awesome. So uh, yeah, it's the, how many records now? Does it does into another half? Jesus Christ! Uh, six. I don't know. We, we did the first album, then we did uh, Creepy EP. We did the Herbivore. So we, there's a few EPs in there, right? That's why it's like uh, and, it's, and do you count those? Like, do you not? Well, because like, some of them will have like a slightly different version of a song that was on an album, right? Like Tail is a little bit different from the version that's on Seamless, and then and then we would throw in songs that were only on the EP, like Herbivore was on one of them. So it's uh, I <laughs> you don't know. even know. <laughs> I, I, I know. Uh, so yeah, I mean the the ones that everyone knows is like the first album, and then Creepy EP, then uh, Ignorus, and then uh, and Seamless, you know. And then we recorded an album that we never finished. We recorded an album in in the in 1997. May have started in '96. Right. Um, and then we ended up suing the label we were on because I can't even count the number of ways in which they fucked us but uh, mm-hmm. but we never finished the album like there are still guitar tracks to put on there and it never got mixed but versions of this unmixed album that was missing guitar tracks uh, got out there and, really and yeah yeah I, I I think I bought a copy on eBay just because I was curious <laughs> no shit and uh, I was yeah paid like 70 bucks or something <laughs> $70 for your own yeah, shit that was leaked that's not even ago. done because I had to hear like what was out there were you happy about it <laughs> no no <laughs> no uh, not at all no but I mean well no I shouldn't say I was I was uh, yeah I was ambivalent I was half happy because uh. you know <laughs> the stuff we had worked on that otherwise would have just never been heard by anyone at least people were hearing it even if in an unfinished like fifth generation copy, um, so yeah, I'm ambivalent about it. You know, it's it's annoying that we we put a lot of blood and sweat and hours into that album that never got released. Um, Does that record label own those masters? No, I think I think the rights have reverted back. So I'm gonna okay. we're, we're going to release it. We're gonna, That's what I was just going to ask you. And I, I don't know whether we'll just we'll just mix it what we put down or whether we will finish the guitars I don't, I don't know maybe we'll do both and, and and have you know put it all on one long volume yeah downloadable something or other I don't know but yeah that, so that album had a couple of working titles one was uh, Soul Control one was Horse Platitudes a play on the doors Horse Latitudes but it was Horse like H O A R S E platitudes instead of latitudes. Okay, it had a lot of working titles, so I don't know what title it will (laughs) it will be released under. But uh, yeah, so we'll get we'll get those masters and we'll we'll get it out there one of these days. Awesome. Will you have anything in the in the works as far as besides that or this is hardcore happening with underdog with numb skull (laughs) with anything? I um I. It's Numbskulls plural, by the way. No. Numbskulls. Uh, uh, <laughs> although Numbskull singular probably would have been a better name. Um, I I still I still write songs. You know, I write these like you know fruity little folk songs. And uh, why like, do they have really, to be fruity? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kidding. I know, I know. Like, uh, <laughs> um, and and they're not folk. I don't know what they are. They're just like sad, pathetic little warbles of a <laughs> miserable weirdo. But um. Yeah, so I, I still write songs, and and I occasionally will like track them very badly with lots of background noise, like with my laptop. So okay. at some point, I will take music I've recorded piecemeal over the last God knows how many years and release something there as well. Um, yeah, and I don't know. Anything could happen. I could be like... I mean, my kids both love music, and... You know, maybe we'll end up like the Partridge family or something. Or uh or, <laughs> the, be heavy. or, or the Staples singers. <laughs> Good stuff. Or the Von Trapps. Yeah. Anyway. I'm not familiar with the Von Trapps. The sound of music. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 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 Not really too familiar. Oh okay. I have eclectic taste, but not everything. <laughs> not not all that. You're not, you're not into Julie Andrews? Uh, no. Maybe I've heard Julie Andrews. I'm just I'm just not hip. Right. Well, Check it out. Seminole film, 1965. Sound of music. Austrian Alps. True story. Good stuff. I'll check it out. <laughs> now, do you have any, um, I guess, lack of a better words, and maybe it's a corny, corny question, or, or, but do you have anything? What do you have solutions at all? 
in you know to this whole shit show of an age that we're living in. I, I don't know if I have solutions. I, I have some or ideas. I, I, I don't I, think I, anyone has a solution. I have ideas. I, I don't pretend to be so self-important that I think I could I solve it. anything. However, um, I'm the same way. I, th- I think a good start. Um, I mean, there are a few things. I I, I do think money is a terrible uh, corruptor, and I think that sure. things like super PACs, uh, into which uh, billionaires can pour countless millions of dollars to to basically influence the world and tip the scales in their favor um, you know here's the thing I, I don't know how to like summarize all this shit that swirls around in my head I am the furthest thing from a conspiracy theorist I don't believe in dark secret conspiracies at all but there are brazen out in the open conspiracies and if, if you use the broadest sense of the word do do the wealthiest people in the world, or a lot of them, not all of them, because some of them are, are benevolent and altruistic and philanthropic, um, but do uh, do very powerful, very wealthy people in the world conspire to make themselves more wealthy at the expense of people who don't have as much power or wealth? Yes. So since since Ronald Reagan began his presidency till now... Um, you know, CEOs make about a thousand percent more than they did, and, and workers make you know eight or ten percent more than they did. And you know, uh, there are a couple of, of really easy, uh, not easy to, to, to enact, but kind of really obvious solutions. If we spent more money on educating and clothing and, and feeding and sheltering and curing people. Um, that's not that's not charity. That's creating a a nation of able-bodied, able-minded people who who would only improve our economy and and our uh, and our nation as a whole. And um, if we spent, you know, if if fewer billions of dollars went into the pockets of people skimming money uh, from you know from pork and, and earmarks added to, to budgets for things then and, and if more of that money went into just education just that you know just improving our school systems and in inner cities and in in rural America you know schools that don't even have arts programs and don't have you know don't have libraries mm-hmm. uh, like you know that would be a great start if we could just as a nation, focus more on educating future generations, and and focus less on you know helping guys like Wilbur Ross double his net worth, you know, two years into Trump's presidency because he owns a huge stake in an ethanol company, and and his buddy Scott Pruitt clears all the regulations away so that his stock can shoot up and he can get a little bit richer, you know, like. I, I think a, a really good start would be campaign finance limits, the abolition of super PACs, and uh, and financial transparency in in government, and just spending a shitload more on, on education. <laughs> yeah, well, I, it's, it's it all makes sense. Yeah, but ugh, it's such a tangled web. Will it, will it's so it happen com- in my lifetime? I doubt it. Right. Oh, and while I'm ranting, get rid of the fucking electoral college. Makes yeah, no rant, sense. rant away, man, rant. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why no, I also sorry. wanted to talk to you. No, don't apologize the, for it at electoral all. Electoral college is indefensible. It, it's it's fucking absurd. All right. to be honest. Um, yeah. So, because the popular vote technically really doesn't really matter. Well, we've had two. You know, in, in fairly recent history, we've had two presidents who did not win the election in numbers. You know, one, right. one human, one vote. Who lost and became you know, became president? So uh, that's not the will of the people. Try explaining that to any other democracy on on the planet. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. But by, by the very definition of, of the word election, you know, the nation as a whole did not elect to have the current leader lead us. And, you know, two point eight million more people wanted someone else to lead us. 
and that didn't happen. So, all right. Anyway, anyway. Okay. So now, would you like to end this podcast <laughs> with maybe a couple, two, three songs on the dog into another? If I could find that numbskull demo, I'll put something on there. Oh, you mean you're going to spin them on your... Uh... Well, yeah. Like, you know, wow. when, when, yeah, I'll, I'll end the podcast with... I like that. Whatever, whatever you want. Maybe a little selection from you. So let's... Uh, why don't we do... Uh... We could throw you to today's song, since you're on the guitar. Sure, you know what? Whatever uh, you want. It's it's your it's your episode, man. Well, why don't you throw it, play Youth of Today free okay. free at last? Cause, okay. Uh, I think that mosh part I wrote the the, <laughs> the music for awesome. Um, why don't we do uh, Underdog, Friends Like Them? Okay. No, actually, strike that. Okay. Underdog, not like you. Sounds great. Um, let's do. Uh, into another let me do the thing of a deep cut you should play um actually from Ignorus okay uh anxious are you sure about that are you asking me oh. or telling me I'm asking no, because that, 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 that's a, that's a weird deep cut. Let's let's do a. Well, I'll do another deep cut. Maritime murder. Maritime murder. Yeah. Nope. Final answer. <laughs> William. There's a song called William. Okay. It's about. On Ignorus. On Ignorus. Right. One of my favorite authors. Uh, died in 1918. William Hope Hobson was a big influence on H.P. Lovecraft. Really. Yeah. Man of a lot of knowledge here. <laughs> it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you just a but, warehouse so. and I just wanted to also thank Mr. Howie Abrams oh I love Howie well he he's the one that put us in contact oh that's right yeah so uh, Lo- love me some Howie Abrams yeah because in cl- closing words and then I'll let you go because I, I am holding you hostage no, in no, your no, own no, office no, um, all good you know every once in a while you know I have like a Facebook group for this and, a, and, a, and an Instagram page and every once in a while I get people that want certain people to come on the show and some people get ridiculous and I'm like I can't you know I can't get blah 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 like I don't have access to everybody mm-hmm. but your name has come up several times wow. so I'm like okay I'll try and then it just so happened that I was I did it was part two with Howie Howie was on twice and um I think we just got into a conversation afterwards, after we were recording, and he was like, well, you know, who, you know, who is people, you know, want? And I was like, well, you know, a lot of people want Richie Birkenhead. He was like, oh, he's like my neighbor, and blah, 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 blah. So, okay. And then, like, an hour later, he's like, Richie, meet Jimmy, Jimmy, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I'm getting group right. texts, and it was very cool. So, and then how he is aces. I love that guy. He's the best. He's the best. He's great fun to talk to. So He's a mensch. He, he did. <laughs> and he, uh, we're both we're both soccer dads. So yes, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so shout out to Howie Abrams as always. You know, yes. great guy. And thank you so much for your time inviting me here at the wee hours of the morning. It feels like for me because I usually work nights, but it's okay. <laughs> I I, I appreciate you uh, getting up early. Then I really do. Listen, it's it's if if you don't work, what's going to happen? Lights go out. Lights go out. Right. Right. Awesome. Richie, thank you again, my man. Thank you, Jimmy. It was a pleasure to meet you, and it was you awesome too. to do this. Thanks so much. Anytime. Really appreciate it. We're over here now.
Yeah!